Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you because it's the day that you have made and we ask that you would empower us to rejoice and be glad in it despite our circumstances. We thank you once again. We praise you once again that we can still um, gather corporately, even though not in person, uh, through this technology and come before your throne to worship and praise you and then in turn to receive a word from you. So that's what we turn to do now, God. We ask that you would quiet our hearts and open our eyes and open our ears to what it is that you would have us see and hear. We pray that you would open our eyes to the revealed truth of your word. And God, I pray that your gospel message, your message of hope and salvation would be communicated clearly in this moment. I pray, God, that you would speak through me. Uh, and I pray uh, that we all would be blessed as we spend time studying um, your gift to us, which is your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it is so good to be back with you. And I mean that seriously. I know some of you are like, uh, this guy gets announced as the pastor and then he does stops preaching. But I'm back today and I, I'm full of stuff to say. And so I'm excited uh, to have the opportunity to open God, open God's word with you again. I want to say thank you uh, to elders Keith and, and Glenn for sharing their hearts over the last couple of weeks and blessing us, blessing us with what uh, God had given them to share with the body. I'm a little bit sad because today is the last Sunday of our Church on Mission series. Um, I have loved doing this series. Uh, whether or not you've loved it, I have loved it. Um, and I'm a little bit sad to see it end. The, the good news is um, you could do, we could do a series, we could do a Church on Mission series for an entire year, which actually is not a bad idea. Uh, but that's, that's not this year. We're, we're going to bring it to a close today and we're going to look at our last mark of the Church on Mission. And so what that means is next week, I'll be back to kick off our fall series, which I'm also actually very excited about. Uh, we're going to study the book of Esther. And uh, the title of that series is Hope in Trouble. And that's a little bit of an ambiguous title on purpose. We'll talk more about that next week um, as we start that fall series on Esther. But with that, today's our last Sunday looking at the church on mission. Uh, we're in John today. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 17, uh, I'm going to read verses 20 through 23. Again, that's John 17, 20 through 23. Uh, or if you're just going to read the words that pop up on your screen as I read, blessings on you. Here we go. John chapter 17, verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only. This is Jesus speaking and the, he's praying actually to the father. And the these he is talking about are his 11 disciples who are with him in this moment. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, one of the most uh, seminal and influential works of literature in American history is a story by Mark Twain called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now I am well aware of the controversy that has surrounded this book literally since the moment it was published all the way up to today, and especially in the, the social and racial moment that we sit in today. I understand and I appreciate that controversy. I also believe, at least at some level, that as Mark Twain was writing Huckleberry Finn, he was writing it as a commentary or really a satire on America and American culture. 
And one of the places we see that in the story is, is a scene where Huck, the main character, and his uh, runaway slave friend, Jim, who are traveling down the Mississippi on a raft, have their raft run over by a steamboat and they get separated in the night. Huck makes it to shore and he comes upon a, a, a large house uh, and is brought in by the family that lives in that house. The family is a well-to-do Southern family named the Grangerfords. And Huck spends several days with them and he gets to know uh, the Grangerford boy who is his age. And as that friendship develops, he learns from that boy that the Grangerfords are in a family feud with another local family called the Shepherdsons. Nobody remembers why the feud started, but for the last 30 years, these two families have hated each other and have been slowly but surely killing each other one by one. The first Sunday that Huck is with the Grangerfords, they take him to church with them. And lo and behold, the Shepherdsons go to the same church. And Huck, as he's narrating this story, tells us this. He says that the men from both families sat in the pews with their rifles between their knees as the pastor preached a sermon on brotherly love. As they left church that day, the Grangerfords talked about what a good sermon it was. But that very same afternoon, that same day, they get into a gunfight with the Shepherdsons and two of the Grangerford boys are killed in that battle. Now, that's a commentary on honor culture and on the hatred that can exist in the human heart. But it is also a commentary on Christian hypocrisy. Families that can sit in church together in the morning listening to a sermon on brotherly love with their guns between their knees and then kill each other later that day. And now, while most of us who are in the church want to distance ourselves from that and say, we're not like that, especially in California, we don't bring our guns to church. If I can get up in our business just a little bit this morning, I think we are more like those two families than we want to admit. Because while we don't sit in church with our rifle between our knees, we do sit in church with our email between our knees and with our Facebook and our Twitter and our Instagram between our knees. And we can hear a sermon on brotherly love and talk on the way home about what a good message it was. But then later that afternoon, see something online or receive an email that we don't like. And all of a sudden we start firing shots and writing scathing things that we would never have said while we were sitting in church. We sit in a moment right now where there is as much division in our country as maybe ever has been in our lifetimes or in our generations. Uh, every single thing we are dealing with right now is a flashpoint for division. Uh, historically in our country, when we go to war, those are the times that our country is the most unified. And we are in the middle right now of a war, a war against a virus, but the exact opposite has happened. It has fractured our country. There, every issue we are facing right now is an issue that is causing division. COVID, is it real? Is it not? Is it serious? Is it not? Was it started by someone for political purposes? Um, face masks, should we wear them? Shouldn't we wear them? Do they work? Do they not work? Uh, church, should we be meeting in person? Should we not be meeting in person? Is this governmental overreach? Is it persecution? Should we civilly disobey? or should we not civilly disobey? Um, uh, racism, is it real? 
And now all of these questions I'm asking are rhetorical, but I'm actually gonna answer that one. It is. Racism, is it serious? It is. And what do we do about it? Social justice. What, what do, where do we come down on social justice? What about Black Lives Matter? Um, what about um, the protests? What about nonviolent protests? What about violent protests? What, the, the Western part of our country is literally burning right now. And even the wildfires, it's like, is it climate change? Is it because we're doing poor forest management? And oh, by the way, lest you need to be reminded, in less than two months, there is a presidential election. There are so many opportunities right now for us to be divided. And that is why today, as we close our series, The Church on Mission, the mark of the Church on Mission that I want to look at today is the mark of unity. A church on mission is marked by unity. Let me just say that again. A church on mission is marked by unity. There are so many reasons for us in this moment to be disunified. And we've got an election coming up. There is nothing that touches a nerve like politics. And that's true for the world outside the church. And that is just as true for those of us in the church. And my fear in this moment is that while some of us might say, hey, we're not actually together, we're not meeting together. And so the potential for division might actually be less in this season. I think it's actually the opposite because we know that human nature is such as we are interacting right now in a virtual world, a lot of digital interaction, human nature is such that we, we are more than willing to say things in an email or on social media that we would never say to a person's face. And so I wanna talk, this is my, this has been a tough season to, to, be, to become a lead pastor and to figure out how to navigate everything that's going on. And I'm not looking for sympathy, but I'll take it. Uh, this, is my, this is my politics sermon, but it's, it's gonna be under the umbrella of what does a church on mission look like when it's walking in unity? Uh, there's just a lot of opportunity for division. And I am concerned, but I want you to hear this really clearly. I am not scared. I am, I am hopeful and I am optimistic because of the truth that is revealed in this word that we are about to study. So don't hear me saying this is a doomsday sermon at all. I am hopeful, I am optimistic, I know God is at work, but I just wanna spend the next few minutes together marinating in the idea of unity. So with that, let's turn finally to the text. And as we get to our text, we are in the midst of what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, it's only recorded in the Gospel of John. He is praying with his disciples after the Last Supper before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. For the first 19 verses of this chapter, Jesus is praying for his, those disciples that are with him in that moment, those 12 or rather 11 disciples who have been with him for the last three years. He's praying for them to the Father. But as we get to our passage that we just read, as we get to verse 20, Jesus transitions in his prayer. He transitions from praying for those 11 disciples who are with him in that immediate moment. And he begins praying, look for it, look at it in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He begins to pray for who? You and me. He begins to pray for his church. He begins to pray for everyone who will come to follow him, who will come to know him because of the witness and the testimony of those 11 disciples who walked with him and lived with him for three years. He is praying for us in these verses. And I think what he prays for is incredibly instructive for us. He does not pray that we would have power, that we would have health, that we would have wealth. He doesn't pray for our protection, for our joy. He doesn't pray for our mission or our vision. He prays for what? He prays for unity. 
in the last words that he is speaking before he goes to the cross, as his heart and mind turn towards you and me and everyone else who is part of his church, he prays the number one thing on his mind is he prays that we would be one, that we would be unified. And that's what we're going to see through these next three verses as we unpack them. So the first thing, I got three points today, which shouldn't surprise anyone because I always have three points or almost always have three points. My first point today is this. A church on mission is unified. Pretty fancy, huh? A church on mission is unified. Let's look back at the text. Uh, One of the first things you learn if you go to seminary or if you take a class on how to study the Bible or read a book on how to study the Bible, one of the first things that you learn is that when things are repeated, there's a really good chance that that means it's important. And so we find in these four verses that three times Jesus prays for unity in his church. Look at verse 21. He says he's praying to the Father and he says that they may all be one. Look now at verse 22. He's praying still to the Father, and he says that they may be what? One. And then skip ahead to verse 23. He says that they may become perfectly one. Three times, Jesus says his, his, his prayer for his church is that they would be unified and that they would be one. But that is literally just scratching the surface of what he is saying in these four short verses that we have just looked at. These verses are what theologians would point to as classical support verses for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I know some eyes just glazed over right there as soon as I said doctrine of the Trinity, but hang with me just for two minutes because I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this home and it's awesome. So these are classic verses which support the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is the classic orthodox historical understanding of the God of this Bible, the God that we worship, which says that he is a Trinitarian God. He is one God which exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Same God, one God, but existing in three persons. They, they share the same stuff. They're made of the same stuff. That's, that's actually kind of a heretical thing to say. They're not made of anything, but understand. They share the same substance, but three individual persons. Uh, theologians use the term mutual indwelling. And we see that in our text when Jesus says in verse 21, just as you father are in me and I am in you. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit, they exist in a mutual indwelling whereby the father is in the son and the spirit is in the son and the son's in the spirit and the spirit's in the father and the father's in the spirit and so on and so forth. The early church fathers came up with a term called perichoresis to describe this. That's a Greek word that literally means peri, around, and chorea, to dance. It literally means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity exists in this mutual dance, this perfect dance of love and unity where they are dancing around each other. And what Jesus says in these verses, what he asks the Father in these verses, is that his church would have the same kind of unity amongst themselves that he has with the Father and with the Spirit. And that's amazing to think that we could have the same kind of mutual love and unity that the Trinitarian God has had for all eternity. But he doesn't stop there. He takes it one step further. Look with me at verse 23. He says, I in them and you in me. He says in verse 21, that they may also be in us. 
He is not saying, God, he's not saying, God, the father, my prayer is that your church would be unified and it would be one like you and the spirit and I are one. He actually says, I want them to participate with us in our unity, in the life of the Trinity. We are invited. Those who follow Jesus Christ and are part of his body are, are participants in the perfect unity and love that exists among the Godhead and has existed since before time began. That should blow our minds. I can't explain it to you, and I'm not going to try to. As, as the early church theologian St. Augustine said, uh, when you think you have understood God, I'm paraphrasing, when you think you have understood God, it is not God that you understand. We can't explain it, but, but and not that we become God, but in some miraculous, mysterious way. Jesus is praying that the unity of his church would be such that it actually participates in the love and unity that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. A church on mission is unified. Now, theologians down through the ages have struggled to come up with a way, a good way to illustrate the Trinity. And so I am not going to solve that problem. Little old me is not going to solve that problem here in just a few minutes uh, between us. But I do want to try and paint a picture as best I can of what I think it kind of looks like. If you think about um, a mother who is pregnant with more than one child, twins, triplets, quadruplets. I mean, let's just go with twins for the sake of the illustration, but anything more than one. In, a, in an imperfect way, I think that is a picture of what Jesus is describing here with this mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Spirit and the Church of Jesus Christ his followers. If you think about two, two babies, two twins that are in utero, they are together in a way that they virtually, it is virtually impossible for them to be separated. Uh, they are in a mutual dance. They are in a perichoresis whereby if one baby wants to stretch out the elbow, the other baby has to move to make room for it. If one baby wants to kick the leg, the other baby has to, to move so that that leg can be kicked. And I, I suspect there are some moms watching who have carried twins or triplets or quadruplets and they're like, yeah, that actually didn't feel at all like a dance. That felt like a fist fight. But for sake of the illustration, it's like a dance. And, and those two babies, they are connected to the mother by an, they each have their own umbilical cord. And so while they are separate persons, they are literally, they are literally sharing the same life, the same DNA, the same nutrients, the same blood is flowing in and out and amongst all three of them, and, and where the mom goes, the babies go. They don't know any other way except to be unified and one. one. One person, but three persons all together. Now, I know that changes at birth, and it all changes at birth, and that's why it's not a perfect illustration, but I think that's a little bit of a picture of what Jesus is painting here for our church. Not that everyone in the church should be a twin. That would be weird. But, but, but in some way, the unity of the church reflects twins or quadruplets or, or triplets or whatever it is, whereby we're all connected and we're all in this mutual dance of, of love and coexistence. And we're connected to a being that is higher than us. And we're sharing in love and unity with each other and with the God that literally gives us life and breath. It's an amazing, amazing truth that a church on mission is unified. Now here's, what does it actually look like? What does that actually look like in real life? How does that play out? Here's what it doesn't mean. And I want to be really clear about this. That does not mean that we agree on everything. 
that does not mean that we agree on everything. All we have to do, look at Jesus' disciples. Amongst those 12 guys, he had Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. The Zealots were a group of Israelites who were trying to incite their fellow countrymen to violently revolt against the Roman occupation of their land. The tax collectors were people who had sold out to Rome and were working for the, the, occupi the occupiers, collecting taxes from their fellow countrymen to enrich themselves. Do you think those two had a few disagreements? Probably more than a few, but for three years, they walked with Jesus and they ministered with Jesus and they learned from Jesus and they learned from each other and they ate together and they camped together and they, they worked together and they did ministry together. And that is a picture of what we can be in the church. Being a church on mission that is unified does not mean we agree on anything. In fact, I would submit to you that loving unity in the midst of disagreement is one of the most countercultural things the church of Jesus Christ can show to the world. Let me say that again. Loving unity in the midst of disagreement is one of the most countercultural things the church of Jesus Christ can demonstrate to the world. Our world knows nothing of that. Our world knows nothing of unity in the midst of disagreement. We live in a world and a culture where if you disagree with me, I am going to shame you into the ground and then I'm going to cancel you. And Jesus is saying, that is not what I want my church to look like. But for us to make that work, for a church, uh, for a church to walk in unity with each other, even in the midst of disagreement, that is going to take things, a lot of things that this book talks about, like kindness and humility and patience. We're going to have to develop thick skin and soft hearts. We're going to have to be able to be offended. We're going to have to be able to even be wronged and still be willing to come back and forgive. To, to be a church that is unified, we are going to have to exhibit things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2, talking about this very idea, the idea of a, a unified church. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I love, I love these verses. I love how he says it because he doesn't qualify it. He doesn't say, uh, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others who are more successful than you, are richer than you, who look better than you, who have more education than you. Count those people more significant than yourselves. He doesn't say that. He says, count others more significant than yourself. So who is that? It's everyone. So if we're going to be unified, even in, in God's church, in Christ's church, even in the midst of things that we might disagree upon, we're going to have to count others as more significant in ourse than ourselves. And that means everyone. We like the, how that sounds when we read the, the memory verse. We don't like how that actually plays out in real life because that means both the CEO and the person who delivered our lunch are people that we should consider more significant than ourselves. The president and the person who cleans the rooms at night, our, our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, our friends, our crazy uncle named Bob. If you have a crazy uncle named Bob, that was totally theoretical and I, I do not know him. Uh, count others as more significant than yourselves. And if we can do that, if we can walk in humility and kindness and love, we can actually display the unity, the oneness that Jesus is talking about in this passage because a church on mission is unified. All right, that's the first point. Second point is this. 
A church on mission is unified around the person of Jesus Christ. A church on mission is unified around the person of Jesus Christ. So um, all those things I just described, those are hard for me to do even in the midst of my family, like my immediate family, the five people I love more than anyone else in the world. So how possibly could we walk that out in the context of a church body, especially one as diverse as ALCF? Look with me at verse 22. Jesus says, uh, as he's praying to his father, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. That's a causal statement. Jesus is saying, you have given me glory. I have given it to them. And that is the reason that they can be one. Now, the scholarship on this is varied. There is not a consensus on what Jesus is saying, what he really means here by the, uh, the really smart guys. And so I'm not saying that I know more than them or I know better than them, but I think we can say, if we don't know, if we can't agree on the specifics, I think we can say generally what Jesus is communicating here. Jesus is saying, I gave them my glory. And what is Jesus' glory? It is himself. It is his self-revelation. We find that in the very gospel that we're, we're reading. If we go back to the beginning of John's gospel, to the, the beautiful prologue of John's gospel in John chapter one, in verse 14, it says this, John tells us, and the word, that's capital W word, he's talking about Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? His glory. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus' glory was his revelation. It was the fact that he came to earth, took on flesh, lived as a man, and in doing so, allowed us to see in the flesh God. He, he showed us God, and in that was his glory. So when we get back to our passage and he says, uh, Father, you gave me glory and I have given it to them. He's saying, I gave myself to them. I have given myself to your disciples. And despite their disagreements, despite their differences, I am enough. I am enough for them to be unified around. My power and my glory are enough for people from widely divergent backgrounds and worldviews to become unified around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The church on mission is unified around the person of Jesus Christ. And we know this. We know this is, this is possible in the real world for anyone who is a sports fan. Look, I have the, 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 the significant, unfortunate um, lot in life to be a Cleveland sports fan. It is, it is not an easy thing to be, um, but I've made my peace with it and I'm just gonna ride out my days with it. Uh, my first time to a Browns game, that's the NFL football team uh, in Cleveland, was in December of 2000. It was, uh, the temperature was somewhere in the teens, the wind was whipping off of Lake Erie. It was snowing at a rate of several inches per hour, so much so that they actually had to brush off the hash marks and the lines in between the plays so that the players knew uh, where they were on the field. Uh, Eddie George ran for 175 yards and three touchdowns. The Browns didn't score a point. And yet despite that, the weather and the, the, the product on the field, the stadium as always was packed, sold out, filled to capacity. In between every quarter and at halftime, as many as could would jam into the restrooms because they were the only places with heaters in the stadium. So, so every in between every quarter and halftime, my friends and I, we, we went with several hundred other men into the, the men's room at, at, at Brown Stadium. It was, it's, I mean, even now I'm like, that's gross. But it, there was heat. And so we jammed in there. And you wanna talk about a motley crew. 
I mean, this is, these are people from every walk of life, old, young, dads, kids, young adults, uh, black, white, people who clearly were doing pretty well in life, others who probably had spent more on those Browns tickets than they should have. But here we were jammed together in a public restroom, singing together, cheering together, laughing together, uh, booing together, some crying together, not me, but some of them doing so. Even though uh, if, if any of those guys had seen each other on the sidewalk, they wouldn't give each other a second glance. They were unified around a common love. And any of you here in the Bay Area who are Warriors fans, you know how that works. We have an ability to unify around sports teams in an unbelievable way. And if that is true in sports, how much more so should it be true for the church of Jesus Christ? We have Jesus Christ himself to unify us despite our differences And my hope and my prayer is that as we look to be a church on mission, that we will rally around Jesus Christ, especially as we look to the season that we are heading into right now. Now, um, I am going to say something right now as I think about what does this unity around the person of Jesus Christ actually look like in the moment that we find ourselves in today. I am going to, I'm going to say something that is probably not going to be popular with a lot of you. And I can say that, I I can surmise that, because 10 years ago, me wouldn't like what I'm about to say, but I've come to a place in my walk with the Lord and in my my path of following Jesus that I, I really believe this to be true. And so here it is. I believe that you can be running hard after Jesus, doing all you can to walk with him and, and be his disciple and follow his lead and discern his will for your life. You can, be, you can be living the Christian life and you can vote for a Republican. And I believe that you can be running hard after Jesus and you can be doing your best to walk with him and be his disciple and, and listen to his voice and discern his will and direction for your life and, and you can vote for a Democrat. And I believe you can be running hard after Jesus and, and seeking his face and, and seeking his will for your life and, and doing your best to follow him and be his disciple. And you can vote for an independent or a libertarian or a tea party. I believe that you can vote across the parties and still be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the reason I say that because there is no political party in this country or other that represents or embodies the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We live in a society that is constantly politicizing everything. Uh, All those things I talked about at the beginning of this message that are, that are causes for division right now. If we really think about it, the underlying, the underlying division is, is a political one. It's a politicization of everything. But here's the deal. Our citizenship, and our allegiance to the United States of America or whatever country you are a citizen of, our allegiance to a political party, whatever political party you align yourself is secondary if we are Christians because our primary allegiance and our primary citizenship is not to the kingdom of the United States, it is to the kingdom of God. And that is where we find our identity. And so a church on mission can be unified around Jesus Christ, even if they disagree wholeheartedly on what is happening in the political sphere because our allegiance to Christ, we are citizens of his kingdom first and citizens citizens of our earthly kingdom second. A church on mission is unified around the person of Jesus Christ. And so, so here's, my, here's my plea to you. 
engage, engage in the political process, engage in politics, seek God's face, seek his will, vote as you believe that he is leading you to vote, but do it, vote, 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 engage so that we might improve, so that you might improve your community and your country. But please let us not forget that our primary allegiance and our primary citizenship is to a higher kingdom than any which is represented here on, her, here on earth. And for that reason, we can find unity in disagreement, even in the midst of such divisive times. Okay, so we've talked about uh, the what, a church on mission is to be unified. We've talked about the how, that is to be unified around the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we're gonna look at the why. Why does Jesus pray to the Father that his church would be one, that it would be unified? The answer is, point number three, the unity of the church declares God's love to the world. The unity of the church declares God's love to the world. And again, when we talk about things that are repeated, this shows up twice in these four verses. Look again at verse 21. Jesus says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then skip ahead to 23. I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He is saying when my followers can walk in unity despite their disagreements, it is a proof that I am who I say I am. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just a proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Look at the last part of 23 that I failed to read 10 seconds ago. So that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Not only when, they, when, the, when Jesus's followers walk in unity, when they, when they live as one, it, it declares to the world the love of God. It paints a picture for the world, the love that God has, not just for Christians. It paints a picture to the world of the love that God has for the world. Remember John three sixteen again, same book that we're in. Uh, 11 chapter, no, 14 chapters prior. For God so loved what? The world. The world, the world, the world. For God so loved the world. Not for God so loved Israel. Not for God so loved Christians. For God so loved the world. He sent his son. And Jesus is saying, I want my followers to be unified because when they are, they show the world the love that God has for them. I, I floss regularly. I, I am a daily flosser. How's that for a transition? I just went from the love of God for the world to flossing. I'm, I'm firing in all cylinders. Uh, I floss regularly, but that hasn't always been the case. Uh, in, in, in the earlier part of my life, that really has become a development as I've been an adult. In the earlier part of my life, I did not floss regularly. In fact, I didn't floss very much at all. I went to the dentist this week on Monday, and it reminded me of how much I used to dread going to the dentist, primarily because I was not a regular flosser. And the reason for that is, as many of you know, there's a, there's kind of a, there's a standard procedure that happens when you go to the dentist. You get brought back to the room and the dental hygienist is there. And as you're settling into the chair and they're clipping the bib around you, they start asking you questions like, um, have you had any issues since your last appointment? Are you experiencing any pain? And it's no, no, no. And then they ask, have you been flossing? And, and they know full well that they are about to look in your mouth and be able to tell you whether or not you have been flossing. That question only serves to shame those who are not flossers. If you are a dental hygienist and you are watching this, we love you 
And you, that I actually heard this week, that's literally the number one most dangerous job in the midst of COVID. So uh, literally we are praying for you. But, sorry, I got, got distracted. Um, th they are about to look in your mouth and tell you whether you have been flossing or not. And so it used to be, they'd say, have you been flossing? And, and I would kind of be like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm doing okay at it. You know, maybe not as much as I should, but yeah, sometimes I've been flossing. And invariably, within the next two or three minutes, they're in my mouth. And depending on how nice they are, they're basically saying, you just lied to me because you haven't been flossing. And I did just lie to them. And so I was just caught red-handed. But now, now, now that I'm a regular flosser, I look forward to the prove it moment in a way I never did before. Because now the proof is in my mouth. When they ask me, have you been flossing? I can say with all kinds of pride, I floss every day. And in the next two or three minutes, they look in my mouth and they tell me what a good job I have been doing flossing. I love that this is how we are ending our Church on Mission series. Because we are heading into a prove it moment for the Church of Jesus Christ. We live in a world. We live in a Bay Area that is looking at Christians, that is looking at people who say, I follow Jesus with my life, and they are saying, prove it. They are saying, look, you, you guys talk a lot about grace and kindness and love and forgiveness. It's really easy to talk about it. We wanna see if you're actually going to live it. And so when people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ are walking together in unity, are doing life together in unity, are, are working through their disagreements and, and they're, they're, are arguing with each other and hurting each other and coming back to the table in forgiveness to each other. That is painting a picture for the world of who God is and what his love can do when it gets a hold of somebody's life. It is literally our mission. This political, this, this election is, is going to be one of the most divisive of, of our generation. And this is a moment that the church can rise up. It is a prove it moment that we can, we can show the world that because we are unified around the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can be one. We can walk in love and forgiveness and kindness and grace, not only with our brothers and sisters who are in Christ, but with those who don't call themselves followers of Jesus because our lives have been radically transformed by the work and person of Jesus Christ. When, when, when white and black and, and Asian and Indian and African and European and, and South American and North American and Pacific Islander and old and young and rich and poor and Republican and Democrat and lion and lamb are walking together and living together and doing life on mission together, it shows the world that there is a God in Israel that there is a God in heaven who loves it and sent his son Jesus to die on its behalf, that they might be reconciled to him and reconciled to each other. The unity of the church declares God's love to the world. Again, in John's gospel, just a few chapters prior, uh, John chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples that you will be known by your love. And it is my prayer in this season, abundant life, that we will be known by our love. If I'm being really frank, if I'm being really honest, I know that this sermon is going to be easy for us to listen to. And some of you might be like, oh, that was kind of a good sermon. Some of you might be like, yeah, it's typical. Yeah, it's okay. Um, but then later today, 
get online or get on Facebook or get an email. And, and before we even think about it, pull the rifle out from between our knees and start firing shots. But it is my prayer, it is my prayer that we will walk in a different way and that we will look to Jesus as we attempt to. Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24, who, though he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If we, brothers and sisters in Christ, have received such grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ, how can we not extend those same things to those that we are walking through this life with? A church on mission is marked by unity. May it be so for us. God, we pray that, that um, as we head into, as we sit in the midst of, I mean, it's not like it's gonna start, it's already started, God. As we sit in the midst of just so many opportunities for division, that God, you would empower your church, not just the ALCF, but your church across this country and across the globe to walk in unity despite disagreements such that the world will look at it and see the proof that Jesus was who he said he was and that your love is for the whole world. We long, God, to be a part of a body that is walking with you and others in that way. Empower us to do so through your glory, we ask. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so good to be with you all. Thank you. Thank you for hanging in. I know this is a little bit longer than, uh, than some of the sermons have been lately. Uh, if you want prayer for anything, we would love to be praying for you. Uh, you can email us at prayer at ALCF.net. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus or uh, to walk with Jesus or to become a Christian, we would love to talk to you about that as well. You can email us at info at ALCF.net. Uh, now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until our Savior comes or until we meet again and then forever. Amen. Uh, you are loved, you are prayed for, and you are sent. <laughs>